This week we're covering one of the most infamous crimes in Australian history. After multiple bodies are discovered rotting in barrels inside of an abandoned bank vault in Snowtown, South Australia, it would kick off a criminal investigation that shocked the residents of the small town, not just because of the brutality of the murders, but also the sheer number of people who were involved and partook in the killings. This is the Snowtown Murders. Well, howdy there, strangers. I'm Jordy. And I'm Brad. And welcome back to Beers with Queers. Thank you again for tuning in for week eight, episode eight, well, technically week seven, but episode eight. And uh, this week we're going to continue the trend of going international. Last week we stopped in London and now we're going down under to Australia. So this is a case that's actually pretty well known throughout the world just for how horrific and twisted it is. Most people probably know it because there's a 2011 horror movie about it called Snowtown, which is a pretty accurate retelling of the overall story. And I highly recommend it if you are a horror fan or a true crime fan, but a fair warning, it is pretty disturbing. And so uh, today we're going to talk about the real case. So let's just jump right into it because this one's going to be a long one, actually. So it's like 30 pages of notes to go through here. So let's just start, let's just jump right into it. On May 20th, 1999, the South Australian Police Department acted on a tip given to them by a man named Simon Jones, who told them to go to an old abandoned bank vault located in Snowtown, South Australia. Police soon arrived at the scene and found nothing unusual in the main part of the building. That is, until they came upon the sealed bank vault. Immediately after opening the doors, the officers were hit with a wave of stench, the very distinct smell of rotting flesh. Upon entering the vault, they soon found a scene straight out of a horror movie. Black tarps hung all over the walls and the ceilings, multiple knives, rope, a bloodstained saw, pairs of handcuffs, pliers, and electrical tools were scattered all over the ground, along with several wallets and pairs of keys. They also found several bottles of hydrochloric acid sitting beside six large barrels pushed into one of the corners of the room. Now, of course, police already had a hunch of what was inside those barrels. Can you guess what it is? Bodies, bodies, bodies. But they had to be sure, and so upon opening it, they were greeted by the horrific sight of seven bodies in various stages of decomposition stuffed inside. Now, of course, it actually didn't take long for police to arrest those responsible for the horrific scene, as the very next day, two men named Robert Wagner and John Bunting were arrested and charged with the murders. But now, as the investigation went on, police would soon uncover multiple people who were involved in all or some of the murders, but in total, four people would eventually be getting arrested, but this was like almost like a dozen people. It was like a gang of serial killers including one of the killer's own stepson. So Now, the discovery of the bank, the bank vault and the bodies inside were the end result of almost three years of investigation into a string of disappearances related to John Bunting. But before we go forward, of course, we have to go ba- backwards and find out how we ended up at this point. So let's just start from the beginning. And fair warning, this is going to be a rough case. So The story begins with the birth of a monster, John Justin Bunting, who was born in 1966 in Brisbane, East Australia. He was the only child of Jan and Tom Bunting, who were said to care deeply for their son and did everything they could to give him a happy and healthy childhood. But John seemed to be showing early signs of disturbed behavior almost right off the bat. He was fascinated with torturing and killing insects and spiders, often slowly dropping chemicals on them to see how long it would take for them to die. He also really loved photography, digging holes, and weapons. And yes, I said digging holes. A childhood friend would later say that John was fascinated by digging holes 
and the two would often spend hours after school doing it. But, I mean, you know, whatever floats your boat, as long as it don't sink mine. He also began to get really into World War II history and learn everything he could about it, which is not weird. I consider myself a history buff. You know, it's my favorite of the World Wars. But um, as he got older, that fascination soon turned to admiration for the Nazis. I was just about to say, it kind of depends on which side that you get fascinated with. <laughs> so... Of course, he was fascinated with the Nazis, and he began to get really into Nazism and white supremacy to the point where he would actually carry around a copy of Mein Kampf and even painted a giant swastika on the inside roof of his trunk. Now, here we're going to get into a trigger warning. There was one very traumatic and horrific thing that did happen to John when he was younger, and that experience is what seemed to shape his motivations and personality later on in life. When John was just eight years old, he was over at a friend's house. Again, trigger warning. His friend's older brother arrived home and proceeded to beat both boys before sexually assaulting both of them. The attack only stopped after the boy's father came home and John's attacker fled away on his motorcycle and immediately crashed it because he was going so fast and he died instantly. So if you wanted a thing of instant karma, that's it. But of course, the damage was done. John was left severely traumatized, and he refused to tell anyone about what happened, even his parents, and this began his deep hatred for pedophiles, which, understandable, and homosexuals. He became obsessed with the idea of tracking down and torturing every pedophile and gay person he could find, which, yeah, I mean, 100% do whatever you want to the pedophiles, have at it. But the older he got, the more John began to see pedophiles and gay men as being mutually exclusive to one another, and he could not differentiate between the two. And of course, just a reminder, obviously, there is absolutely no correlation between being gay and pedophilia, and actually, it's the opposite, with research showing that the overwhelming majority of assaults against children, including young boys, are uh, by straight men. So now, it should also be noted that this was in the 60s, and Australia used to be a very homophobic country but of course most countries were homophobic back then the 50s and the 60s it wasn't acceptable to be gay and oftentimes being gay was associated and grouped with being a pedophile so john's beliefs were learned and pretty widespread uh, actually um i highly recommend if you want to learn more into australia's history with queer people look up the gay gang murders which we might actually cover in a future episode but basically it was gangs of youths who for the last 40 plus years have been hunting down gay men and throwing them off cliffs to their deaths. With since, since the 70s, there's been at least 88 confirmed murders and 96 people arrested related to them. But now also to share a bright note, I don't want people to think I'm shitting on Australia because it's actually listed as the fifth most supportive country in the world for LGBT rights right now. And 80% of all households believe that queer people deserve equal rights. So it's a lot more gay-friendly today than the majority of the countries, even the United States right now. So, But now back to John. So he continued to strengthen his Nazi beliefs as well as his hatred for gay men throughout high school before graduating and going to work in a slaughterhouse. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been in a slaughterhouse before. Have you ever been in a slaughterhouse? I have not been in a slaughterhouse before. But do you know how it smells? Uh, I can only imagine, I have been to like, my, my father was like raised cattle and everything and we would go to the stockyards and there was a slaughterhouse near the stockyards and every so often you'd get a woofed from there and I always thought, I can't imagine someone being able to stand that all day. Well, of course, yeah, it stunk horribly, it's disgusting. And I say that as someone who spent three years working in a hospital operating room, so I've smelt it all. But that actually didn't bother John at all because he actually didn't have a sense of smell due to an unknown illness when he was a baby. And that actually does play a role later on, so keep that in the back of your mind. Now, John loved the job, mainly because it let him continue his fascination with death. And he would often tell friends how happy it made him when he got to slaughter the animals by slitting their throats open. Now, I don't know... Um, if I continue to be friends with someone after they told me that, but I'm sure if you're a practicing Nazi, your friends probably are like, yay, you're getting to kill stuff. I was about to say, I'm sure the friend pool with you is not very clean. There's pee in it. 
Now, eventually, John would move to Adelaide with several friends, and by 1988, he was settled down and working at a motor museum. Now, all of his co-workers described him as being pleasant and friendly, although sometimes strange. John shared a flat, again, an apartment for those of you here in the States, with two friends named Kevin and Michelle, and pretty soon the two roommates began to notice strange and disturbing behavior from John, such as finding stashes of rope, tape, and knives hidden around the house, as well as John's increasingly violent fantasies of murdering anyone he thought was a pedophile. Now, one notable incident actually happened when Kevin's dog attacked and bit John's dog. The next day, John took Michelle out to the shed behind their flat and showed her what was inside. Again, trigger warning. It was Kevin's dog hanging from the ceiling dead. John then made Michelle swear not to tell Kevin and the mention... To mention that the dog probably just ran away, and she of course agreed because I'm sure she was scared shitless. Now this part's actually pretty funny, and I do hope it's true, but with John, you never know because you'll find out he's a bullshitter. But apparently John decided to load the corpse of the dog into his car and drive it out to the woods to get rid of it. Michelle would later mention how hours later, John returned home covered in blood, dirt, and his pant leg was shredded apart. When she asked what happened, John said he didn't realize the dog wasn't dead and that it came back to life and attacked him before he finally managed to get the car door open and kick it out. (laughs) And so I really hope that's true. I hope the dog tore his ass up, and I hope it ran off into the woods to live happily ever after. So by 1989, when he was 23 years old, John met and married an 18-year-old girl named Veronica Tripp, who was noted as having several disabilities, including vision and hearing problems, The two quickly married, and Veronica moved in with John, Kevin, and Michelle. But now by 1991, John and Veronica would move out of the flat they shared with Kevin and Michelle and into a government-owned property in a poor suburb of Adelaide called Salisbury North. Now, not long after moving in, they met two of their new neighbors while out on a walk, and they were Vanessa Lane and Robert Wagner. Now, Vanessa was 36 and Robert was 20, which doesn't seem too weird on the surface until John quickly discovered the truth from Robert. Because you see, Vanessa was Vanessa was transgendered, and she was also a convicted pedophile who had been grooming and in a relationship with Robert since the teen was 14 and Vanessa was 31. She had actually lived in the same neighborhood as the teenage Robert, and when he was 13, Vanessa began to groom him, often giving him gifts, acting as his friend, treating him like an adult... Now, Robert seemed infatuated with the older woman and refused to stop seeing him, often disappearing from his house to be with her. Now, Robert himself had a pretty rough go at things from an early age, and at one point he even attempted suicide at the age of seven by swallowing a bunch of his mother's pills, and it was after this failed attempt he revealed to her that he had been sexually abused by an adult growing up. Now, eventually, in 1984, Robert and Vanessa disappeared for good and they went on the run to avoid the authorities and Robert's parents from finding them. And the two would remain missing for almost four years until soon after Robert's 18th birthday when they returned to town and reunited with Robert's family because now that he's 18, cops couldn't do anything. Now the two soon moved into a home together, and they were not shy at all about being open with the relationship, which resulted in them being constantly harassed by neighbors and the local youth, which included spray-painting slurs on their fence outside their home and the home was vandalized often but that did not stop the couple at the that did not stop the couple at all as they would often be seen walking around hand in hand down the neighborhood and it was on one of these walks they met john and veronica now john was actually pretty welcome welcoming of the gay couple and the two couples would often hang out together at each other's respective homes but of course do not let the kindness fool you john didn't hate gay people any less, but instead he saw both as useful tools to get what he wanted. So John saw Robert as being a victim like himself and began to believe that he could rescue Robert from the quote-unquote homosexual lifestyle and recruit him for his cause of hunting down gays and pedophiles. Also, the two grew close because they shared a mutual interest and admiration for Adolf Hitler. And when I say admiration, I mean both John and Robert joined a radical group called National Action, that preached racial purity and stuff like that, and they were actually kicked out because they were considered too radical. Now, John deeply 
hated Vanessa because she actually was the two things John hated more, the, hated the most in the world. But John continued to be nice to her as she, he believed that she could actually help him in locating other known pedophiles and gay men in the area. And that's exactly what she did because just a year after the men became friends, John would claim his first victim. Clinton Trezice was a 22-year-old openly gay man from Adelaide who had very little in life. He had been in the foster care system since he was three. He grew up being bounced from family to family. He had few friends. And even after getting back in contact with his birth family, they disowned him after they found out he was gay. But even still, Clinton refused to hide in the closet and was never ashamed to be openly gay and oftentimes would be found wearing very bright and colorful pants, which in Australia... I think it's called Happy Pants, or at least in the early 90s. Uh, I don't know if that's how it is now, but that's what John would call him, but he would call him Amanda as a slur. Now, two of Clinton's only friends were Vanessa and Robert, and he would often visit the couple at their home to hang out. It was during one of these visits that Clinton was introduced to John Bunting, who took an immediate dislike to the young boy and began to refer to him as Happy Pants and not in an affectionate way. By August 1992, John said he had become tired of Happy Pants and wanted to get rid of him. Now, the exact details of what, if anything, happened to turn John murderous fantasies to reality, it's unclear, we don't know, they never said anything. But on August 31st, John invited Clinton over to his home one day to hang out, and it was during this visit that John proceeded to beat Clinton to death with a shovel. The attack was so brutal that the back of Clinton's skull was completely caved in, and the bones in his left hand were shattered, likely from where he tried to defend himself. Now, John proceeded to wrap Clinton's body in plastic trash bags before calling Robert and Vanessa and asking them to come over and help him dispose of the body, which they actually fucking did. They both came over, the couple, the couple came over, helped John load the body into the back of Vanessa's car, and the trio... The trio proceeded to drive out to a wooded area near a town called Lower Lot and buried him in a shallow grave. Now, John's wife Veronica was completely oblivious to the whole thing until a few days after the murder when Vanessa, who seemed visibly shaken, came over and told her everything that had happened. Veronica confronted her husband and he told her everything without even trying to hide any of the details. However, Veronica chose not to go to the police and instead kept the details of what she was told to herself for years because she was afraid of what John might do to her if she, you know, told anyone, which, understand, what's well, that fear thing? My thing is, this guy who came over and hung out with these people, so they were friends, mm -hmm. and then he gets murdered, and then you go over and you help bury your friend and help the murderer. I just don't understand that. You're about to find out Robert's a psychopath, and then Vanessa is just a the shittiest version of a predator. Like, what you imagine when you think of the word sexual predator, that's what they are. So none of these people are in any way, like, have any sort of morals. So they're like, yeah, you killed someone, and we'll help you, we'll help you get rid of it, buddy. So now, Clinton was not reported missing until 1995, three years later, but his body was actually discovered on August 16, 1994, buried in the shallow grave, and his case was cold for years afterwards and would even be featured on the TV show Australia's Most Wanted, and keep that in the back of your mind because that plays a part in a chilling incident later on. Now, John wouldn't kill again for another three years after the, his murder of Clinton. Why this is, we'll never know, but one reason may be due to the fact that in 1993, he was he actually began seeing and getting close to another resident of Salisbury North, 40-year-old single mother, Elizabeth Harvey. Now, Elizabeth was born Christine Ann Ude, and she had a rough go at things. You'll see everyone in this story, victims and perpetrators, like, all had terrible home lives growing up. From the very beginning, her mother left her father when she was three and married a man who turned out to be a monster. He was abusive to Elizabeth's mother, an alcoholic, and soon began to sexually abuse Elizabeth throughout her childhood and only ended when he suddenly died. Now, Elizabeth would grow up to have crippling depression and severe abandonment and attachment issues. She had her first child in 1976 at the age of 23 and named him Troy Ude since Troy's father left Elizabeth soon after he found out she was pregnant. Eventually, in 1979, the... Uh, I'm sorry. Two years later, Elizabeth would meet a Greek sailor named Spyros Blastics, which how cool the name is that, Spyros. The two quickly grew close to one another and eventually got, got married. 
things were great for the couple, and Spiros even asked if he could be put on Troy's birth certificate and adopt him as the two had grown extremely close. Eventually, in 1979, the couple had their first child together, a boy named James, but called him Jamie. By 1985, the couple had two more sons named Adrian and Christopher, and things seemed just normal for the family. But of course, looks can be deceiving, because in reality, the family was falling apart, Neither parent could find much work and relied heavily on government assistance, which, you know, for a family of six is probably impossible. The parents would constantly fight, break up, make up, and repeat the cycle over and over. It was also come to light that Spiros was extremely abusive towards the family and sexually molested Troy and his older son, Jamie, for years, only ending when Spiros died of a heart attack in 1986. And that's another thing in this story is every, almost every man in the story is a sexual predator. Like this whole neighborhood. At least a lot of them's dying pretty quick. A lot of them will die pretty quickly, but then you see the lines start to blur for John and his accomplices between innocent people, like actual monster pedophiles, and then people they just thought were. And so pretty soon they did just start using it as an excuse to kill whoever they wanted but now by 1993 elizabeth was really struggling she was addicted to pain pills and gambling and on top of that raising four kids by herself she was also taking care of her ill mother at the time so she had she had a lot she had a plateful she had a lot going on and doing all that a kind neighbor of hers named jeffrey Payne offered to watch her kids for her while she took care of things and elizabeth saw that as a blessing but again unfortunately that was not the case because jeffrey Payne was a pedophile Jeffrey began to sexually abuse and rape the young boys almost daily before eventually focusing all of his attention on 13-year-old Jamie. He told Jamie as long as he kept quiet, he would leave his younger brothers alone and told the other brothers if they said anything, he would kill their mother. So none of the kids said anything for several months. Now eventually, a concerned neighbor who knew about Jeffrey's past informed Elizabeth and she soon called the police in March of 1994. But do you want to know who the um, concerned neighbor was? It was another convicted pedophile, Vanessa Lane. She knew exactly what Jeffrey was doing and watched him daily as he took the kids into his home and would even tell people later that the only reason she told anyone was because she was jealous. And so that's why she went and told Elizabeth herself exactly what was going on. She didn't do it out of the kindness of her heart. She did it because she was jealous. She wasn't the one abusing the boys. Now, Jeffrey was arrested, but not... He denied all of it, and pretty soon he was released on bail and allowed to continue to live just down the street from where the boys he abused lived. Neighbors would later say that he often would sit on his porch and yell taunts at the boys as they rode their bikes around. Now, this deeply affected Jamie, because of course it did, and he soon fell into a very deep depression. He began to take frequent showers where he would scrub himself raw. He began to struggle in school and soon turned to drugs and alcohol to numb the pain. It is also around this time that his older brother Troy also began to sexually abuse Jamie on a regular basis. So you can kind of understand why some of these people are fucked up. Now, Elizabeth wasn't the only person that Vanessa told about Jeffrey. She also informed John Bunting, who, of course, was pissed, so he wanted to talk to Elizabeth himself. So he went over to Elizabeth's house and told her all about Jeffrey and Vanessa and how both were monsters and that he wanted to protect her boys. Eventually, John began to go see Elizabeth more and more over the next few months. And so I should also mention at this point that his relationship with Veronica was starting to crumble. I wonder why. And by the middle of 1994, John and Elizabeth began a relationship. Now, all of Elizabeth's boys liked John, but none more so than Jamie. Jamie loved John and looked up to him as a hero. This was the first positive, quote-unquote positive, male figure Jamie had had in his whole life a man he saw as being the one to end the cycle of abuse he had suffered his whole life at the hands of men he should have been able to trust. And John loved Jamie, and the two began to grow extremely close to one another, often taking long rides on John's motorcycle, going to the movies, and John even encouraged Jamie to put more focus on his schoolwork, and pretty soon Jamie was back on track in school. So the love, went even further, the love was even further strengthened when John confided his own childhood sexual abuse with Jamie. And so, of course, the two started to form a really tight bond. And so things were good for a while, but that didn't last long. 
John's very vocal preachings about his hatred for pedophiles and gay people grew more and more violent, and pretty soon he began to kill stray animals around the neighborhood and would often make Jamie watch as he skinned their corpses. During one incident, John actually trapped a dog in the backyard and gave Jamie a gun and told him to shoot it. When Jamie was unable to pull the trigger, John took the gun and shot the dog himself. From abuse to a different kind of abuse. From physical to psychological, yeah. So Jamie would also later recall an incident that happened in 1995, one evening when he and John were sitting on the couch watching Australia's Most Wanted. Remember that. A segment came on about the unsolved murder of Clinton Trenzy, and John began to smile and laugh as he boasted to Jamie, saying, That's my handiwork. Now, eventually, by the end of 1995, John had divorced Veronica and officially moved in with Elizabeth and the kids. It was around this time that John also began his Wall of Spiders, as he called it, and that was a bedroom wall that he had covered completely from head to from floor to ceiling with photos of various men, pages of writing, and details about all of them. All of these were men he suspected to be pedophiles. John used blue string, which he tied to each photo and weaved into the other photos pinned to the wall to show how they were all connected to each other. He also referred to them as uh, rock spiders. I don't know if that's something he came up with or if that's an actual slang term for pedophiles in Australia. But um, he called them rock spiders, hence his wall of spiders. And he also referred to gay men as the dirties. Now, he had all kinds of info, different info below each photograph that told details about each one's life and crimes. Like it would say whether they preferred young boys or girls or preteens. One even talked about how the guy would dress up as a mall Santa to find his victims and that he was banned from several local shops in the area. So John really did see himself as the guy who was going to take down the pedos in the area and protect the children, which is nice in theory. Now, John would also target those men, too, and every now and then he would select one from the wall and then spend a few weeks making that guy's life hell, such as constant prank phone calls throughout all hours of the night, spray painting their homes, and pouring brake fluid all over their cars. And a lot of times, John would actually enlist Jamie's help in carrying this stuff out because Jamie himself began to see John as a heroic figure. He was the guy that was going to make sure all the pedos paid for what they did, and that only made Jamie love him more. Now, John also kept files on various men around the area with very detailed descriptions of their hobbies, their work schedules, their specific types of abuse they preferred, and all of this info was provided to him from his talks with Vanessa, who freely told John anything he wanted to know. But Vanessa had her own file, and John was finding it harder and harder to hide his disgust for her, as he would often follow her and watch as she waited around public restrooms searching for young boys. But he continued to put up with her in order to keep getting information. So now by this point, John is increasing his acts against anyone he believed to be a pedophile or gay. It went from harming animals to stalking to pranks. But it does seem weird that he, he's already murdered someone by this point. It's weird to think that by this point, he still only killed one guy for reasons we still don't know, actually. But that would soon change because another one of John's neighbors was a woman named Suzanne Allen, who was friends with Vanessa and Robert. Now, Suzanne lived only a few houses down from John, and pretty soon, by 1995, he was already having an affair with her. It wasn't long after the affair started that Suzanne told John about the man she was allowing to live in a caravan in her garden, and that man was 26-year-old Ray Davies, and he was a pedophile. So, like I said, this neighborhood is crawling with them. Now, and the government doesn't seem to want to do shit about it, even though kids live there. Now, John went and asked Vanessa about Ray, and she told him all about his past and his current crimes. Ray had moved to the neighborhood in 1989 and already had a pretty lengthy criminal record by that point, including theft, robbery, and indecent exposure charges for, and this is really fucking disgusting and trigger warning, for being caught trying to have sex with dogs on several occasions. Soon after moving in, he met Suzanne, and the two hit it off, and they eventually got engaged. But the marriage would not last long, as Ray would frequently go visit Vanessa and Robert's house to have sex with other men while he was there. So obviously, you know, that can kind of be an issue for some people in a marriage. And by 1993, uh, they were broken up, but they remained friends, and so Suzanne continued to let Ray live in a caravan parked out by her garden. Now, after the divorce, Ray began to hide in the bushes around the suburbs and spy on the neighborhood kids while pleasuring himself and so 
But everyone seemed to ignore it. No one called the police. It just kind of was an open neighborhood secret. So I don't know what the fuck was wrong with this neighborhood. Because everybody else was a pedophile, Everyone's too. Everyone's a pedophile. <laughs> it's literally it's like pedoville. So now, Christmas of 1995, Suzanne had two boys over to her house that were friend, that were kids of a family friend. But they soon caught the attention of Ray. And after Suzanne found out that he had molested the two boys, she finally was pissed. For some reason, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for her. And she had enough and ordered him off her property before calling John and telling him what had happened. Just a few days later, Ray would disappear. So remember Robert Wagner, like Jamie, he too had fallen victim who he too had fallen under John's spell, and the pair were growing extremely close, with Robert sharing more and more of John's beliefs and supporting him in his efforts to rid the rule to rule the world of pedophiles. And he also was growing an increasingly big disgust towards Vanessa. But we'll get to that later. Well, one night after his phone call with Suzanne, John and Robert kidnapped Ray, handcuffed him, and threw him into the trunk of Robert's car before driving to a deserted house several hours away that John was renting. The two men dragged Ray to the upstairs bathroom and threw him in the tub, where they proceeded to beat him savagely with a metal pipe, mainly focusing on smashing his genitals and crushing his testicles. After they were done, the men dragged Ray back out to the car, loaded him back up to drive him back to Salisbury North, where, who do you think they were taking him to? To either the woman or they were going to get Jamie involved? No, they actually took him to Elizabeth. So they actually took him straight to Elizabeth, and upon answering the door, John gleefully told her that he had gotten her a present. The men dragged Ray inside and into one of the bedrooms and again continued to beat him while yelling obscenities at him. Finally, John brought Elizabeth into the room and asked her to help them, and she did. With the help of Robert, Elizabeth wrapped jumper cables around Ray's throat and proceeded to strangle him to death, all while John watched with a smile. After Ray was dead, John asked Elizabeth, did you like your present? So now Elizabeth is the third person John has gotten involved directly with this, after Robert and Vanessa. After the murder, the three dug a hole and buried Ray's body in the backyard of Elizabeth's house. Now they still had to deal with Suzanne. As Ray never came to collect his things from the caravan, John made up some half-assed story about how he scared Ray so badly that he would never return or bother her again, and she accepted it. But now John continued his relationship with Suzanne for several months until breaking up with her in 1996. But this did not stop her from trying to get him back, constantly calling, sending him letters, love notes, and eventually he had enough. He was afraid that now that they weren't together, Suzanne might go to the police and tell them that John was the last person to see Ray alive, so she became a loose end that he needed to tie up. John can, uh, Suzanne Allen disappeared in November of 1996. Her car was missing, and the inside of her house looked like it had been ransacked. Now, eventually, after the discovery of the bodies and the barrels in the bank vault, that's a tongue twister, Suzanne's body was found cut into pieces, wrapped in 11 trash bags, and was found buried on top of Ray's, in the same grave in the backyard of John and Elizabeth's. Now, police believe more than likely John strangled Suzanne to death inside of her home to keep her quiet, but John would tell a different story to police, saying that he had actually gone over to her house to discover her dead on the floor from a heart attack. Now, John also told this same story to Jamie after Jamie noticed a bunch of Suzanne's stuff in the house. He again said her death was an accident, but he took it a step further and described how him and Robert dismembered her body, and at one point Robert used Suzanne's severed head as a puppet to French kiss John with it. Now, Ray was never reported missing, but John knew Suzanne would be, and so he made up this whole story about her and Ray ran away together after she was found to owe money to some loan sharks. Eventually, she was reported missing by her brother, but police noticed that she was still drawing her uh, pension welfare checks every month. And do you, can you guess where they were being delivered? I have an idea. To John and Elizabeth's house. So police went and investigated, and John said, yeah, she had lived here for a while, but then she ran off with a boyfriend, and they accepted that answer. They said since she's still drawing her pension, she's alive, and so they removed her from the missing persons list. Now, by this point in 1997, Robert Wagner had completely changed. He went from identifying as gay and being in a relationship with a pedophile to disowning the quote-unquote homosexual lifestyle breaking up and leaving Vanessa. He's now engaged to a woman, and they're already planning on having their first child together. He even became a part-time fireman. John has succeeded in what he set out to do, which was make Robert fully committed to hating pedophiles and gay people. And it got to the point where if anyone even mentioned Vanessa's name, he would beat them nearly half to death in a violent rage. 
He also wasn't shy about making it known how much he hated anyone who wasn't white. Now, it was 1997 that Robert made the acquaintance of 19-year-old Michael Gardner, an openly gay man who was close friends with Robert's fiance. Robert hated how gay acting Michael was, as he called it, and also hated how his fiance would often allow Michael to watch their three children, his, her three children from a previous relationship. Now, in September of 1997, Michael was actually home house-sitting for Robert's fiance's cousin while she was out of town, and knowing that Michael would be alone, he and John went over to the house where they proceeded to kidnap Michael and drove him a few hours away to the house where John was renting. At the house, Michael was subjected to hours of torture. He had cigarettes put out all over his body. A car battery was hooked to him to give him electrical shocks, and he was beaten savagely all over his body, but mainly his groin and his legs. After they were done, John and Robert dragged Michael out to the garage where they tied a noose around his neck and the other end around a wooden beam, stretched it so tight that Michael would have to remain standing if he didn't want to hang. While he was standing the noose with the noose around his neck, John made him call a family friend and tell them that he planned to go away for a while to Snowtown and to not worry or look for him. The friends would later say that Michael sounded tense and he could hear voices in the background telling him to hurry up before he could ask any more questions and the line went dead. Now after the phone call, John and Robert beat Michael in the legs further before pulling up chairs, sitting down to watch as Michael struggled to remain standing. Eventually, his beaten legs grew tired and he slipped and hanged. All the while, John and Robert sat and watched while laughing. After Michael died, the two men went back to the house and ransacked it. John then bought a 44-gallon barrel and stuffed Michael inside of it, making him the first body in the barrels. Now, by 1997, Vanessa also announced she had followed the same path as Robert and denounced the quote-unquote gay lifestyle and was now a straight man going by his former dead name, Barry Lane. So, he even got engaged to a woman for a short time, but the two quickly divorced after she discovered his criminal past. So, from this point on, Vanessa Lane is now Barry Lane. So, I'm going to refer to him as Barry. But now, pretty soon, Barry set his sights on a new victim, 18-year-old Thomas Trevallon, a paranoid schizophrenic. Thomas eventually moved in with Barry after Barry spent a couple months grooming him, and eventually this got back to John and Robert from a friend in the neighborhood, and so this is just Robert's situation all over again. And so, again, it infuriated them. So on October 17, 1997, the two men set their plan into motion, but they also had the help of the third accomplice. Can you guess who it is? Jamie? It Elizabeth? Was- it was Barry's teenage lover, Thomas, who wanted revenge for being taken advantage of by Barry. The three men attacked Barry in his home and handcuffed him before demanding the number and info for his credit cards and bank accounts. After that, they made him call his mother and had him scream abusive slurs at her before telling her he was going to a hitchhike across the country and he would be away for a while. Now, after that phone call, the trio of men began their torture on Barry Lane. They first stuffed bandages into his mouth and used duct tape to tape it in his mouth, wrapping it around his chin so that his mouth was held open, preventing him from screaming. After subjecting him to multiple beatings, they proceeded to break every toe one by one with a pair of pliers. Afterwards, they strangled him, rolled his body into a carpet, left his body in his home for several days before returning and stuffing it into another barrel. So, Barry knew what these guys were capable of, and he had someone on the phone. Mm -hmm. I think I would go for it. I think I would start screaming out their names and be like, because I'm going to die anyway. You know you're going to die. I mean, he's a known murderer. You've helped him bury somebody at this point. And that's the thing. It's like, they do that, like... I think every victim from this point on, they make them call someone or they record them saying like how they're going to run away and start a new life and stuff. And I mean, yeah, personally, I'd probably just be like, you know, fuck it. This is the end of it. Just yell like they're going to get caught now anyway. But especially this one, they Barry knows all their names, yell it. And then, you know, at least when they kill you, somebody's going to come looking for them. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to end up in a barrel. So now by this point, Thomas was taken under John and Robert's wing and treated as a new member of the team. Thomas moved in with Robert and the two began to grow close. But Thomas also stopped taking his medication. And remember, he's a paranoid schizophrenic. So he, was, he soon began to exhibit erratic behavior and believed everyone was out to get him. And then eventually he confided in his cousin all the details of the murder he had helped commit. But she didn't believe him because, again, he's a paranoid schizophrenic and he'd often make up stories. 
So by this point, Thomas had become a liability to John and Robert, and so they knew exactly what they had to do. On November 5, 1997, a truck driver passing through the town of Kersbrook noticed a body hanging from a tree just off the highway. It was the body of Thomas Trevallen. After discovering money in the teen's pocket, they ruled out robbery as a motive, and due to his prior history of mental illness, they suspected it to be a suicide, but they wanted to be sure, so they called the home of the last person Thomas was known to have been staying with, Robert Wagner, who wouldn't you know it, Thomas had indeed, had he confirmed that Thomas had been talking about hanging himself in the days before his death, and so police officially ruled it a suicide. So the current tally of victims is up to six. Police are still unaware a serial killer gang, that's, this is a gang, is on the loose. Now John and Robert were really floored because they successfully pulled one over on the cops. They convinced the cops that one of their murders was a suicide. So, you, you know, they're feeling on top of the world. Now, by 1998, John had moved with Elizabeth and the kids to Burdekin Avenue near East Adelaide. I hope I pronounced that right. Jamie had been living out of the house for a while, but eventually moved back in with his mother and John due to financial issues. And he brought a friend along with him, 29-year-old Gavin Porter. Now, jo Jamie and Gavin had met each other as both were going to the same methadone clinic in an attempt to get clean off drugs. The two spent some time living together, but they were still doing drugs. And John tolerated it, but he did consider both of them wastes due to their drug habit. Because he has high moral values. He's like Pee-wee. That's the thing. that They don't care to murder all they want, but drugs is where they draw the line. On October 3rd, 1998, Jamie took his younger brothers to a nearby drive-in movie and would later tell police that he saw Gavin working on his car in the driveway. After returning home a few hours later, Gavin was nowhere to be found, but Robert was now at the house. And pretty soon, John told Jamie to follow him out to the garage because he had something to show him. So, he followed him out there and hidden underneath the old couch cushions, he found the body of his friend Gavin wrapped in several trash bags. John then happily told Jamie about what happened, saying that him and Robert waited until Gavin had fallen asleep in his car and then proceeded to wrap a noose around his neck and began strangling him. Gavin attempted to defend himself with a screwdriver and even managed to stab John in the hand with it but it did nothing to stop him, and John strangled Gavin to death, and he stated it was because he he became enraged after being pricked by a discarded syringe left on the couch by Gavin. Which, yeah, I mean, that would piss me off too, but I think I just kicked the man out of my house. Now, a few days later, John brought home another 44-gallon barrel and made Jamie help him stuff Gavin's body inside of it. The two then pushed it into a nearby shed where two other barrels sat in a corner. John went over and opened one of the barrels and smiled before telling Jamie, they're rotting very nicely. Now, John gave Jamie Gavin's bank of cards to use as he wished, and pretty soon Jamie was helping John spread rumors around town about how Gavin had ran away and disappeared. And so now that John was fully aware of what, now that Jamie was fully aware of what John and Robert had been up to, John was ready to help avenge the abuse Jamie had suffered growing up. Because remember, John's own abuser died right after he assaulted John when he was younger. John also helped Robert and Thomas torture and murder their abuser, Barry Lane. So now John wanted was ready to take care of at least one of Jamie's abusers, his older half-brother, 21-year-old Troy Ude. So Troy himself was living at the house because he was already experiencing his own problems with drug addiction. And so in September of 1998, John was ready to remove Troy from the picture permanently. Jamie would later recall the night of his brother's murder as follows. Elizabeth and the kids were out of town for the weekend, meaning the men had the house all to themselves. Jamie was awoken from his sleep by Robert Wagner, who proceeded to hand him a wooden club. The teen was then instructed by John to follow them to Troy's room. The trio snuck in and surprised a sleeping Troy by starting to bash him repeatedly with the clubs. Now Troy woke up and attempted to flee and begged Jamie for help, but he was no match for John and Robert, and the two subdued him on the floor. John yelled for Jamie to put handcuffs on him, but the teen froze in fear before fleeing from the bedroom. After he got the courage to go back, he saw John and Robert lead Troy into the bathroom where they handcuffed him in the bathtub, and then they began to slap him and demand that he refer to them as he referred to John as Lord Sir and Robert as God. So they're also narcissistic on top of everything. Now, eventually the two men began to punch and beat Troy in his groin area before John pulled out a pair of pliers and began using them to break each one of Troy's toes before then using them to rip his toenails off. So he was starting to up the ante here. 
and that's not even the worst thing he'll do to some of his later victims. John then pulled out a tape recorder and voiced, voiced, forced Troy to record a message to his mother about how he ran away and that he wanted her to leave him alone. After they finished recording the message, Jamie attempted to flee from the bathroom, but John yelled and demanded he come back. Jamie did as instructed and returned to the bathroom, where he was instructed to kneel in front of the bathtub to be face-to-face with his brother. John then told Troy it was time to apologize. Now, Jamie began to remind Troy of how he used to abuse him when they were younger, and Troy began to cry and beg for his brother's forgiveness before John stuffed a sock into his mouth and duct taped it in place. John and Robert continued their vicious beating against him before taking a nylon rope and tying it around his neck and strangling him to death. Jamie would later recall that John got nose-to-nose looking Troy dead in the eyes as he watched the life leave him. Now, after Troy died, the three men loaded Troy's body into another barrel, but he ended up being too big, and so John proceeded to hack off one of his foot, his feet, while forcing <laughs> one of his foot, one of his foot, one of his feet, while forcing Jamie to watch and explaining how carving, what carving techniques he used. Now John told Elizabeth all about how Troy had run away, and he never wanted to see her again. And of course, she was heartbroken. But now remember, Elizabeth herself had helped John murder his second victim, Ray. Now it was around this time that John began seeing another woman named Jody. Now Jody. This might get a little confusing. So, Jody was the sister of a woman named Elizabeth Hayden, who was the wife of an old friend of John and Robert's named Mark Hayden. And to avoid confusion, I'll just call her Liz. But Mark had recently just moved back to the town and into a home with Liz, her two daughters, and Liz's sister, along her sister Jody, along with Jody's 18-year-old son, Fred Brooks. Now, John began telling Elizabeth that he was actually, he became a long-haul truck driver, and so that's why he was away so much. And he could still support them because he was still getting money from all of his victims that he was still drawing their pension from. And I think I mentioned this later on, but just to mention it now, they ended up scamming the government out of $90,000 worth of funds from their victims. Well, if the government comes over and they're like, oh, yeah, they left, but they left us the money and everything. And they're like, oh, cool. Uh, we were looking and they we thought that they were dead, but we're just going to make them um, alive again. Uh, they deserve to get scammed. There was nobody doing any kind of due diligence in that at all. No, uh, I agree. Now, he began to spend more and more time with Jody, but it wasn't long after this that Elizabeth decided to move to a newer home down the street from their current one, which meant John had a new problem. What the fuck was he going to do with the barrels in the shed? He decided to enlist the help of his friend, Mark, and together the trio along with Robert loaded the barrels containing four bodies at that point and deposited them in Mark's garage. So now Mark's the next one, and he was fully aware of what was in them. Now, John was very on edge due to the large number of people in the house that he didn't trust and were worried might find the barrels. Most of all, Jody's son, Fred. Now, Jody was not described as being a very pleasant mother. She really didn't care for her son growing up, and he spent a lot of his time in foster home from foster home before finally ending up back with his mother. Fred dreamed of joining the Air Force and escaping his family's life of destitution, He actively disliked John, though, and although at first John did try to act like a father figure to the boy, when Fred rebuffed him, John instantly hated him and wanted to get rid of him. So, on September 17th, 1998, and this is going to be a trigger one. This is probably like one of the worst cases of torture I've ever heard. On September 17th, 1998, Fred Brooks disappeared without a trace. And what's even more sad is that is the day he actually found out that he got accepted into the Air Force. That day, Jamie received a call from John telling him that he had some goodies back at the old house they had recently just vacated. Upon arriving at the house, John informed Jamie that Fred had been tricked into coming into the house. He was kept handcuffed in Troy's old bedroom, and pretty soon John and Robert began taking turns strangling the teen, only stopping right before he would lose consciousness. Both men also told Fred to refer to them as Lord Sir and God. Like, fucking dipshits. Now, the two men dragged the teenager into the bathroom and placed him in the bathtub, where they beat him viciously before putting lit cigarettes up his nose and in his ears. They then forced him to record a message to his mother, explaining how he had run away with a couple of girls, and he did not want her coming to look for him. After he finished the recording, 
the recording. After he finished the recording, Robert began to break all of Fred's toes with a set of pliers, while John began to explain a new torture device to Fred, a device that could deliver up to 260 volts of electricity. Now this part is very extremely rough. John hooked crocodile clamps to Fred's testicles and penis and began to deliver increasing jolts of electricity to them until Fred would admit he was a pedophile, which all records show that he most certainly was not. But eventually by that point, he'd been through some poor boy, been through so much pain that he was just admitting to whatever John wanted him to. So after Fred finally got him to admit to whatever he wanted, this part's really fucked up. John took sparklers, you know, the kind you get at 4th of July, and inserted them into Fred's penis before lighting them on fire and watching them burn down to the skin. And they were not done. After they did this, they stuffed a sock and taped it inside of Fred's mouth before injecting water into his skin and testicles. Eventually, Fred finally died after asphyxiating on the sock in his mouth. Afterwards, they rolled his body up and waited for Mark Hayden to come pick it up and place it inside a barrel in his garage. John again told Jody the story that Fred had run away, and when she tried to call his cell phone, it went straight to voicemail, which was an angry message John forced Fred to record, telling his mother to leave him alone. And although she tried to report him missing, the police heard the voicemail, and they said that was enough to consider Fred having just ran away, and so they did not. Case closed. They took him off the missing person list. Before we go too far, I also want to point out these guys, you know, they have a lot of a fascination with testicular torture and penis mm-hmm. torture and everything. Like they're fixated on some stuff. And this this guy was obviously not a pedophile. so He wasn't gay either. And so they're breaking the rules for one. And I could see where they're like justification for doing that kind of stuff to a pedophile because they're destroying this like evil instrument. But at this point, it almost seems like they have a weird fascination with this. A hundred percent. You know how it always is. It's the ones that are the most vocal about, oh, I hate gay people. Not. They're the ones that are the biggest gays behind closed doors. And so it's really very telling about how uh, passionate they are about gay people and penises but yeah this is around the point where it turned from they justified you know they were getting justice for monster pedophiles and killing them and pretty soon it just the line started to blur and when they were like i want to kill someone they would just tell themselves oh he's probably a secret pedophile or oh he's probably gay secretly so let's just kill him and they justified it in their mind so these guys were very fucked up so now they've gotten away with two murders right in their own fucking home And again, that just made their bloodlust grow. But soon, of course, they realized that they can't just keep murdering people in their household because, you know, third time it might get a little suspicious. So they had to start branching out, looking for different victims. So John would actually start taking Jamie along with them on rides around the neighborhood to help him identify any possible homosexuals. It was on one of these rides the two spotted 29-year-old Gary O'Dwyer walking down the street, and John remarked how he thought he was gay. I don't know how you can tell, but he was like, oh, that guy must be gay. It actually turns out Gary was actually a neighbor of a friend of Jamie's, and pretty soon the two began a a friendship at the urging of John. Now, of course, like everyone else in the story, John was a victim of the foster care system, and he had been disabled ever since a car accident in 1994 when he was hit and left for dead by a driver who was never identified. But after discovering that Gary got a monthly pension, John had Jamie set up a hangout at Gary's place for all of them to come over and hang out, and that's exactly what Jamie did. In November 1998, Jamie set up a hangout session with Gary at his place, and he brought John and Robert along with him. Not long after arriving, John and Robert quickly pounced, handcuffed Gary before beating him. They began to question him on whether he was a pedophile or gay, and any time he denied it, they would use the electrical device that they attached to his penis to electrocute him until he gave the answer they wanted. Now, Jamie would later say he couldn't watch anymore, and he was allowed to leave by John, but not before he had to hit Gary a couple of times to prove his loyalty to John. After Jamie left, the two men continued their torture for several hours before finally strangling Gary to death. It would be several days before John took Jamie in a truck with a trailer 
back to Gary's house because they were going to rob the place again. Which, when Jamie mentioned how he was afraid the neighbors might recognize him in the daylight, John said he'd already got that covered. He walked straight up to the neighbor's house, knocked on the door, and when they answered, he told them that Gary was moving and had sold all his for- his furniture to John. He also asked Gary, he said that Gary had also asked for the neighbors to take whatever they wanted that was left in the house. And so John led them over to the house to look around and see what they wanted to take. While next door, the neighbors remarked about a strange smell coming from the laundry room, which John said was spoiled meat Gary had thrown out a few days before. But of course, it was Gary's body. And after they left, his body was loaded into a barrel. Now, we are almost at the end of the murder spree because not long after Gary's murder, John decided that Mark's wife, Elizabeth, needed to die as she knew too much because, as John told Jamie, Mark's got a big fucking mouth. I want to go back for just one second. This guy took neighbors into a house that there has a dead body in there. He Mm -hmm. is ballsy at this point. He is. He's very confident that he can get away with it. And not only that, he just let them in. He said, yeah, Gary told me you can just take whatever you guys want. And, I mean, again, a lot of these neighborhoods were rougher neighborhoods, so... It's a good thing they weren't looking for, like, a uh, dryer or a washer. Because they would have seen a body. And they probably would have been dead, too. They would have ended up in a barrel. So, John decided that Liz needed to go. Because Mark had told Liz all about John's murder of Clinton, as well as what was in the barrels in the garage. So, fearing she might go to the police, he decided, let's just kill her. On November 21st, 1998, while Mark Hayden took Jody and everyone else in the house out for a drive, John and Robert acted and attacked Liz while she was in the house alone. Now, Jamie wasn't present at this one, so there's no real first-hand account of what happened, but an autopsy would later show that Liz had asphyxiated after a sock was forced into her mouth and duct-taped in place. Her body was then taken out to the garage and placed in one of the barrels. Now, after returning home with Jody, John told this big story about how Liz had made a pass at him, but he turned her down, and then that caused her to flip and lock herself in her room. Now, Mark was like, okay, okay, I'll talk to her. You guys just stay gone for a while, you know. Everyone leave the house so I can talk to her alone. And so everyone agreed. And when they returned, Mark said Liz had run off with a new boyfriend. She got one pretty quick. So that's how they got her out of the house. Now, this is where the murder gang's luck started to run out. Because up until this point, a lot of the people they murdered were people that weren't, didn't have a lot of people that cared for them. And so they were either didn't get reported or they were pedophiles. And the police were like, not going to put that much man hours into searching for a missing sexual predator. And so they got away with it pretty good for a while. But now people did miss Liz because not long after she disappeared, her brother uh, her brother reported her missing because he was suspicious that Mark's story of what happened changed several times in the following weeks. He eventually got the police involved, and Mark, John, and Robert were brought in for questioning. All three men shared the same basic story of Liz running off to be with another man, but something didn't quite sit right with the lead detective. And he had a search warrant issued for Mark's house, where they found her purse, wedding ring, and bank cards hidden under dirty laundry. After this, he figured it was enough evidence, so he brought in a forensics team to look over the scene and discover small drops of blood in one of the rooms and a terrible smell coming from the garage. But no bodies or barrels. Police had just missed the barrels by a few days. So John realized pretty quickly that he needed to find a new location to store the bodies in. And at first he left them in a car marked own parked at a friend's house named Simon Jones. Now, when the friends asked what that horrible ass smell was, John stated the barrels contained the carcasses of kangaroos and they accepted as the answer. And again, remember at this point, John can't smell anything. So he's having to rely on others to tell him how bad the smell is. So he does not have a firm grasp just how fucking rancid this smells to people. Now, it should be noticed that, of course, like I said, these barrels started to stink. After a few months in January 1999, John found an abandoned bank in Snowtown that the owner agreed to rent him for $70 a month. And so he, Robert, Mark, and Jamie moved the barrels into the bank vault of the building. Now, it should be noted they were really rancid again. And so... After John asked Jamie, how bad is it? You know, on a scale from like one to 10, Jamie was like, it's pretty fucking bad, my guy. 
So uh, John just tossed some air fresheners in there. That'll, that'll do it. Now, while the investigation into Liz's disappearance was ramping up, another investigation was already well underway and was slowly but surely putting the pieces together. Because by this point, Barry Lane, or Vanessa Lane's sister and mother, had actually reported him missing. There was little police could do as there was no evidence of foul play until in July of 1998 when police got their first clue. Security cameras caught Robert Wagner using one of Barry's ATM cards to withdraw money from his account. Now, this was enough for police to turn their attention towards him, and pretty soon they began to trail and follow him, all the while digging further and further into his background, and pretty soon they started unearthing similar cases, such as the disappearance of Suzanne Allen and Ray Davies, that he was connected to. So by January of 1999, police had tapped Robert's phone and were now fully suspicious of Robert and his friend, John Bunting. But before they are caught, the murder gang would claim one final victim, 24-year-old David Johnson, who was actually the son of one of Elizabeth's former husbands she briefly married after Spyros died. Um, and so it was technically it was Jamie's stepbrother. Now, eventually, David returned home. He returned back to the town to live with Elizabeth and John, and John took an immediate dislike to the man. He eventually convinced Jamie to lure his former stepbrother to the bank vault in Snowtown, and Jamie agreed to do it. On May 9th, 1999, Jamie drove David to the bank, walked him inside, where Robert and John immediately grabbed him. Now, again, we don't know the full details of what happened because Jamie was tasked with grabbing David's credit cards and driving to a nearby bank to check to see if they, they worked. And by the time he came back, David was dead. But now David did not go down without a fight. He actually managed to break free and fight off his attackers long enough to crack several of John's ribs and grabbing his thumb and breaking it in half. So he, uh, he definitely went, this one was like, no, motherfucker. And so, but of course now John's hands hurt. So he told Jamie that he would have to help dismembering David's body. And so he began to help Robert saw the body into pieces. And that's when John announced they had a, a visitor. It was a friend of theirs named Simon Jones. He was the one who they, he allowed for them to park the barrels on his property for a while. But he, he'd grown a little curious about the new location they were spending all this time at. And so he came into the bank. He was like, hey, guys, what's going on? What is this? I think he's probably getting a little suspicious. And all the while, on the other side of the door, John's outside explaining the situation. Like, oh, you know, we're just hanging out. On the other side of the door, Jamie and Robert are hacking a man to pieces. But now eventually, John managed to convince Simon to leave without incident. After Simon left, the trio of men decided that that was enough for the day and decided to pack up and go home. But not before... Robert snagged a piece of David's flesh, which he took home with him, and him and John proceeded to fry it and eat it. Just a few days later, police would close in on Simon. So we're back to where we started. Police closed in on Simon due to his affiliation with the men, and it was him who pointed, that, pointed them in the direction of the bank vault, where they would eventually discover the bodies of all the victims. Now, and again, it was discovered on May 20th, by May 21st, police had already arrested John, Robert, Mark, and Jamie. Eventually, the trial lasted nearly a year, making it the longest in the region's history. In December 2003, John Bunting was found guilty of 11 counts of first-degree murder. Robert Wagner was found guilty of 10 counts of murder. Both John and Robert got life without the possibility of parole. Mark Hayden pled guilty to assisting in five counts of murder and received 25 years with the possibility of parole after 18. Jamie was found guilty for four murders and is eligible for parole after 26 years. And with that, that is the closure of the Snowtown murders, ending one of the darkest and most horrific cases in Australian history. And the town of Snowtown is still a fa It's actually become like a big tourist trap they've, to the point where they've thought about changing the name because, of course, the case itself, but then the movie that came out afterwards has drawn like this huge crowd to the area. But that is the story of the Snowtown murders. I'll say that movie, I've, I'm a big horror fan, and I, I see it on there all the time. And every time I looked at it and just like read the briefest part of the synopsis, I was like, this is going to be so depressing. I was like, I... 
I don't, I don't want to watch anything like this. It's it's too depressing. And I have to say, this has been a really depressing. There's way too much pedophile, child torture. I mean, this this was rough. This one was a rough one, especially. I mean, there are cases where there's like one or two, but there was like fifteen fucking pedophiles in the store. Too many people involved in it. That's okay with it. It just. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you mentioned like Elizabeth didn't even get charged with anything. Yeah, she actually had a hand in strangling one of them personally. It's just really depressing. And the movie is very, very accurate to what happened, like to a T. And so, again, like I said, recommend it if you can handle that type of thing. But fair warning, it's everything I just described, but you get to see it. And so this was, like, the more I was researching, like, I've heard about the Snowtown murders before, but I've never actually, like, went into detail. And the more I was, like, researching, it's like, damn, damn. Like, every time I would go down, like, writing my notes, like, and then they moved here, and it was a pedophile. I was like, damn. And, like, and then they went over to live here, and it was a pedophile. I was like, motherfucker, how many can you cram into one neighborhood? And that's why, honestly, Jamie mainly I kind of feel for because, you know, that poor kid didn't have a chance from the beginning. He's an adult. He knows what he's he's doing. But also at the same time, you you got to know he's fucked in the head from everything he went through. And... That was like everyone in the story, even a lot of the victims that weren't monsters, weren't pedophiles, like they were victims of said monsters. And it was just a, uh, yeah, it was a rough one. So I can see why this is one of the most infamous cases in Australia. Any more thoughts? Depressing. It is depressing. So sorry for giving you guys a downer. Uh, Hopefully not too depressing. Next week is another wild case. Not as depressing, but this one. <laughs> Next week's going to be a, uh, here's a hint. It's a drag queen turned murderer. So I'm excited for y'all to hear next week. And until then, you can always follow us on our social medias. Facebook at Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. Or on Instagram at Beers with Queers pod. That's P-O-D, pod. We post photos from the case, and so if you're a visual learner instead of an auditory learner, you can go there and check out some of the photos and put some names to the faces. And until then, stay dangerous out there, my friends. See you next week. Bye.